Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message. Uh, This is a day that we often view as a new start, a fresh start, something that is uh, an opportunity for us to take and to change us, you know, out with new year, new me, uh, new year's resolutions, all of those things. And we all want to better ourselves. Uh, All of us would say there are things we need to work on and there's this desire to work on them and to give ourselves to something more and to be better than we are. And honestly, most people in that regard have really good intentions. We, we want to be better than we are. We want to, to better ourselves. But if, if we're really honest, our follow-up isn't exactly great, right? Like inevitably, probably not in here but elsewhere, inevitably at the end of January, we'll still be on day three of Read the Bible in a Year, right? Not here, other places. Um, for, for many of us in June, we will cancel that new year, new me gym membership that we use twice in the first two weeks of January and finally accept that it's just probably not going to happen and a little bit of a waste of money. Um, and here's the thing with, with life, it's not just new year's day resolutions, but a lot of us, we want something that we can commit to and give ourselves to and feel so passionately about that we can commit our lives to it. And that's not specifically a thing just for Christ followers. It's across the world. We want things that we'd be willing to give our life for. In fact, one of the oldest tropes in, in books and movies is this idea of the, the hero or the, the, the main character having to make the decision between what is easy and what is right, even if right costs them their life, or what is you know not noble and what is noble, um, and making that decision. And, and we love that. We love seeing that. In fact, I, I just out of curiosity, I looked at the top 10 grossing movies of all time, and all of them, I could make an argument that that is one of the themes, and for most of them, you could make an argument that's the main theme of the person going, man, I, there's this thing I have to do. It could cost me my life, or it could cost me greatly, but I need to do it. It's the reason we love these movies. We love these stories. Despite being used a lot, we still will watch them. We still will read them, and, and we absolutely love them. My favorite movie scene that, that regards this uh, is in Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. And uh, it's when, if you've never watched it, it's, it's fantastic. Take two weeks and watch all three of the extended editions together. But um, it's this scene where, where in Return of the King, there, there are these orcs. And, okay, first of all, hold on. Uh, folks who are big Lord of the Rings fans, I need to say this. I know that it was Aomir in the books that said this and King Theoden in the movies, but I'm talking about the movies. So don't be like, oh, Blake, you don't. Listen, I'll talk to Lord of the Rings all day about it. And for you who didn't understand any of that and go, does it matter? I promise you, they think it does, right? <laughs> Listen, they'll tell you. They'll tell you 100%. About it. So we're talking about the movie because if you've never seen it, you ought to look it up. It's, it's in the Battle of the Pelennor Fields and uh, Minas Tirith, bear with me. If this is not your thing, just indulge me a little bit. Um, and and the, the, this Sauron's army is knocking down the door and they're going to come in and, and kill all the people and they feel like victories within their grasp. They're there. And all of a sudden in the movie, you hear this horn blow. And you see one of these lead orcs who just, I mean, he's an ugly mug, slowly look over. And 
a ways away, there's just a line of warriors on horses that ride up. It's the Rohirrim. Y'all listen, I'm getting chill bumps. And you, and you see them come up there and you see that they're standing there and it's a great army. It's not as big as, as the army that they're facing, but it is this huge army. And King Theoden rides to the front and he has his sword and he's, you know, gives this rousing speech. Again, if you've seen Braveheart or any other one of these movies, there's always the rousing speech by the king. And he gives this long rousing speech and he ends it with this. And ooh, listen, this is going to get you. He yells, death, ride, ride to ruin and the world's ending. Whoo, there we go. Listen, like, I'm telling you, like, the, and again, it's, it's this incredible moment to where he's telling his soldiers, listen, most of you probably won't make it out, but this is what's right. Death, ride, ride to ruin and the world's ending. And then, holy cow, listen, this whole line of soldiers, they look like Vikings, are just driving these horses as hard as they can toward this group of orcs. Orcs fire the arrows. Some of the guys are dropping. Horses are dropping. But they, the rest of the guys don't check up. They keep charging. Then they tell the orcs, fire at will, and they just start launching arrows. And then you start seeing the orcs back up and start running. And the guys who are charging them have not stopped. And they just ride. And it shows this aerial shot of like this wedge that just slams into this army, and man, it is just this incredible moment in this movie that, again, I can watch it over and over and over again, and it's this moment of um, these, these soldiers doing what is what they know is noble, what they know is right. Despite their own safety, they push that aside. They, they do what is right, what is needed, and this, ins this inspires us. Again, this is a common thing in books. And it inspires us because ultimately we all want something that we're that dedicated to. We want something that we can be committed to enough and that we are willing to die for. It's the reason that, that we hold our military in such esteem because we see that people in the military have signed up to, to, be, to fight for something bigger than themselves at their own risk. And because of that, we, we honor them. That is a very common thing. And, and it speaks to this God-given desire that we have to look for something bigger than ourselves, to live for something bigger than ourselves, something that resides in all of us, to give our lives for something that matters. In fact, Jesus said that the greatest uh, act of love is when someone lays down his life for his friends. So in exchange for your life, in exchange for the safety and the life of someone else. In fact, this is the central theme of the gospel. This is why even people who don't believe Jesus is the son of God and don't believe that scripture is inerrant and don't believe that it's God's word, they can read the story of Jesus and love it because this incredible story of the innocent um, taking death in exchange for the guilty receiving life. It's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story. And we see that the selflessness that Jesus lived with, we can, it's no wonder people followed him. So in Luke chapter 14, we're going to go there. So Jesus is walking, and the multitudes are following him. Uh, people are walking with him. He's walking toward Jerusalem. And it's not hard to see why people would want to follow Jesus in this day. Think about what they had seen. They had seen him heal people. They had seen him cast out demons, demons that the religious leaders of the time couldn't do anything with. They had heard these incredible teachings that were world-changing. They had seen him rebuke these sanctimonious religious leaders who looked down on everyone and then turn around and eat with a bunch of no-good sinners. This is crazy. Like, 
this incredible man who was both spoke with both spoke with authority, but also was was so loving and compassionate. Everyone had a different reason to follow him. If you're one of the religious leaders, you're going, why aren't people listening to us anymore? They're listening to this guy who, who doesn't even have a home, but they're following him. Why would, why would they follow him and not us? Look, look at how good we are, but they follow him. If you're one of those sinners, you follow Jesus because maybe you, no one's ever given you respect and no one's ever um, treated you with dignity and treated you with value. But this, this religious leader did this. Rabbi did treat you with value. In fact, look at his ragtag group of disciples, of the ones we know their job. It's a bunch of fishermen and a tax collector. These are the guys he chose. He picked the ones who were close to him. If it, listen, if he'll take them, he'll take anyone. This is incredible. We could see why anyone would follow him. They'd heard him talk about uh, dedication to the Lord in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God money. Well, listen, if you're the destitute and you're the poor and you can't love what you ain't got, I ain't got no money to love, so I'll love the Lord. Choice is easy, right? Let's go see what, he, let's go see what he's doing. Let's go see what's next. However, everyone's motivation was not good. Again, some just wanted to see miracles, just to see what God could do. Some wanted to see this promised king of the Jews overthrow these imperialistic, godless Romans who had been oppressing them. Some wanted to follow him to prove he was a fraud, that he wasn't who he said he was. None of these motivations of the people who wanted these things were spiritual. They didn't have these. They just wanted to observe. They wanted to, see. They wanted to be a part of the newest thing. Now, if you're building a movement or an organization, in our words, you would say, if you want something to go viral or you want something to be popular, Jesus makes the worst, what we would, what a person wanting to do that would call mistake. Obviously, it wasn't. He thins the crowd. So he's walking, and he's walking along with them, and he turns and he says some things to them that were very difficult to process. You see, in the same, it's the same today as it was then. In terms of souls, Jesus wants to fill the house. He wants everyone to come to know him. He wants everyone to, to find forgiveness and to find him and to pursue him and to have a relationship with them. But in terms of discipleship, Jesus pursues the ones who are willing to pay the price. See, we love to talk about God's grace and how grace is freely given, and it is. Listen, anything good that we have is 100% God-given. It is only by the grace of God that we have anything good in our lives. Anything. But it's a lot harder to talk about what are God's expectations of us. What does he want from me? And it's pretty simple. The price for God's grace is laying down at the Lord's feet your earthly substance, everything. Your credit, your esteem, uh, ease of life, your liberty, desires of this world, everything. It's giving everything to him. It's laying everything at his feet. And what do you get in exchange? You get to identify with Jesus. You get to be with him. You get to have a relationship with him. Maybe one of the most clear examples of this is the story of the rich young ruler that we see where he, he comes and he says, you know, uh, Rabbi, what do I need to do to be saved? And 
he, he tells him, he talks about the law and all this, and this rich young ruler is like, man, I do all of that. Absolutely easy. I do all of those things. Yeah, this is great. And then Jesus says, okay, there's one more thing. Go sell everything you own and give it away. We often look at this rich young ruler as he's kind of maybe, maybe silly and, and maybe just crazy and, oh, he's just being selfish, but he's actually being pretty forward. He understands that it's an all or nothing, and it says finally, disheartened by the saying, the rich young ruler went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He did all the right things. Everything on paper looked good until it got to giving up the things he valued most until it got to giving up the things maybe he'd worked for or maybe that he had inherited or the thing, whatever it was, that was the stopping point. So verse 26, Jesus tells us what the expectation is of those who want to follow him. Again, mind you, he, he's walking and there are these multitudes behind him and, and they're, they're following him just waiting to see what's next. And he stops and he turns around and he tells them that to follow him means inalterable, untethered allegiance to him. Giving up of everything. It means complete and total commitment and surrender. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, and even his own wife, he cannot be my disciple. Now, we talk a lot about Marriage ministry and family ministry and loving your neighbor here, we're not like backpedaling away from this, right? But in these in these ancient eastern in the ancient eastern world and in, in this context, um, oftentimes you would speak with hyperbole to drive the point home. And God is saying, or Jesus is saying, in comparison to your family, your love for me should be so great it looks like you hate them. That's the gap that there should be. If I have to choose between Jesus and my family, it means picking Jesus. And we've got to understand the context here. Culturally, family was much more intentional and purposeful in those days. Now today, unfortunately, we see a lot of families that are broken and a lot of families that um, kids hating their parents, parents hating their kids, siblings hating each other, all, all these sorts of things. But in this time, you lived close with your family. You walked with your family. You... You, you spent time with your family. You depended on them, and they depended on you. So Jesus is saying, you're giving up your lifeblood. If it comes between me and them, you have to choose me. He's calling them to a commitment that is not cheap. It's not easy, and it shouldn't be done without intense and thoughtful consideration. This is an all-or-nothing proposal. This shouldn't be something that you jump into. This is a big thing. We, you know, it shouldn't. A lot of them were just following the shiny. They're following the miracles and the multitudes. You know, did you hear about the five loaves and two fish? Did you hear what he did with that? You know, you're walking and some guy, man, I'm hungry. Don't worry. All we gotta have, if we have this much, he can give us food. I've seen it happen. We have nothing to fear. We're good. They're following the shiny. And Jesus turns around and says, "Listen, to follow me doesn't mean to look for those things." Are you willing to give up the most important things, both good and bad, in exchange for a Savior? Now, we can see how 
maybe giving up money or giving up an addiction or giving up some of those things for Jesus. That's easy for anyone to see. Oh, that, yeah, that's understandable. Those are, those are bad things. Those are negative things. Uh, the love of money is bad, sorry. Those are bad things. Those are negative things. Yeah, obviously giving those things up, we should value. But what about your family? What about the good things in life that we may be tempted to value more than the Savior himself? What about our ministries? As a pastor, I, I have to remind myself the most important thing is not my ministry. The most important thing is my relationship with the Lord. And out of an overflow of that, everything I do in my life should be filtered through that. And here's the irony of all of this. This is the ironic part of this. The best thing that I can do as a husband, as a father, as a son, an uncle, a brother, any of those, is to love the Lord more than anyone else in my family. To love the Lord more than everything in my family. To love the, lo love the Lord far and above everything. And then allow everything else I do to flow out of that. Because if I give up everything for God's best, I have nothing left to give me than what God says is best. It's pretty simple. The best thing I can do for my marriage or for my kids is to commit to the Lord wholeheartedly and out of that overflow of my relationship with God to, to invest in my kids spiritually, to disciple them, to invest in my wife, to pray for her, to love her. So Jesus not only says that, but he goes even further. So he says, you know, you're gonna have to give up your life. Now listen, this is hard. I'm not saying this is easy truth, but maybe you say, and maybe our thought is, okay, give up my life. Man, that's rough. I, I have a good life, and I love my life, but okay, I'll give up my life in a glorious battle. A gl you know, this glorious, you know, uh, riders of Rohan riding through and, you know, on the Pelennor fields fighting this, doing this righteous things. Well, I'm not exactly there either. Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. Now, your cross isn't your annoying coworker or people who just kind of float in the left lane whenever you're trying to get somewhere, okay? We hear that, well, it's my cross to bear. No, that, that's, that's, that's obviously a gross uh, understatement and not at all true. This cross is, is everything. It's all worldly desires, all worldly passions. And at this time, the people who heard Jesus wouldn't have thought what we think. You go anywhere in the world now, and you see a cross, and it's associated with Christianity. It's associated with, with maybe, maybe not necessarily even Jesus, but Christianity. But most places even associate it with Jesus. We put it um, in our homes. We put it in stickers. We wear jewelry with it all. And it's all a reminder of what, uh, of what God has done for us for the most incredible act of love that has ever been in all of history of the Lord Jesus dying on the cross on behalf of our sins. That's what we think when we see the cross. But at this point, culturally, you've got to understand what the cross represented and what it was. It represented a death sentence. Not just a death sentence, but it represented humiliation. It represented being made an example of. You see, the cross was meant to be an act of deterrence by the governing party. A lot of people had done it before the Romans, but the Romans definitely perfected it, and they definitely made it as bad as they could. So uh, I won't get too graphic on this, um, but 
look it up. Uh, Cameron Lane has done some lessons on them before uh, about physically what the cross did. But the first thing is you would be, you know, tried and walked through. Uh, you would be stripped down to nothing. I know all the pictures of Jesus. He has the loincloth. Um, probably didn't have that. Stripped down to nothing. Beat to a pulp uh, within you know, moments of your life uh, revived, you would carry part of your cross, um, probably not all of it, but just probably just the cross beam. Uh, they estimate it would weigh maybe around 100 pounds. Again, you've been beaten pretty severely at this point. Uh, through the public, uh, you would be taken to the upright part of the cross, which was also in a public area. You would be hung on it. Uh, there would be a sign above it that had your name and your crime. That way everyone knew exactly why you were there and what would happen to them if they committed the same exact thing. Um, this was all supposed to be deterrence. By, by the occupying force. It was a long, painful death. In fact, you would oftentimes hang there for days. And if you were lucky, the Romans would want to leave earlier. They weren't like technically allowed to leave you just there alive. They had to stay. So um, they'd kill you a little quicker if you were lucky. But then most of the time, you would be left hanging there as a continued deterrence. This is why when we see Joseph of Arimathea go to um, Pilate and ask to take the body of Jesus, typically victims of crucifixion would be left there. So um, this is not this is not an easy thing. It was supposed to be humiliating and degrading and shameful. In fact, it was so gruesome that Romans would say that in polite society, we don't talk about crucifixion. No, that's done out in the wilderness and those other places. We don't talk about it. It's, it's improper to talk about. And Jesus turned around and told a bunch of people, take up your cross. To follow me means take up your cross. It wasn't a call to benefit from miracles of healing and food, but rather a call to humiliation and ultimately a death sentence. You see, those who were following him on the road to Jerusalem, who were excited, they thought they were headed toward a new empire. Again, they're, they're, listen, these oppressive Romans, this is the Messiah. He's going to overthrow the Romans. This is what we're going to do, and I'm going to be a part of it. We're going to see miracles. We're going to see all of these things. We're going to be restored to our former glory. But Jesus knew he was headed to his death. He didn't want to pull the wool over their eyes. He didn't want them to commit to something that they didn't know what it was. He, he walked them through everything. He didn't want to put it in the fine print. He said, no, this is what saying yes means. To say yes means uh, you give away all earthly desires. You commit your life to self-denial and to watchfulness. You, you, you do what you're called to do. You may have to say you face rejection from your family. You face rejection from the world, your reputation. All these things may have to be given up. You definitely have to give up comfort. You definitely have to give up what, what naturally comes to you because our flesh is sinful and it's denying that. It may even cost you your life. You see, to bear your cross meant to identify with Jesus in his shame, in his suffering, and in his surrender to God's will. And then, not, not exactly what you want to hear if you're part of the multitudes, but if you're one of the people who, was fo who were following him for his teachings and for what he had said, you, you get a little bit of what you're looking for. Jesus was so good at parables and so good at using object lessons to explain what he was talking about. And he takes this opportunity to use two object lessons, one of a battle and one of a building. 
Now, the building, um, both of these are appropriate because both of them ultimately always cost more than we consider. If you've ever built something, you typically get an estimate. And I don't know if ever in the history of the world they've come back and said, actually, we came in under. Don't worry about the rest. You know, typically you're like, oh, well, we did this and we did it ideally. And it's going to be about 20% more. You know, things change. Um, It's always more than you expect. And in terms of a battle, it's this idea of considering the cost of what it means to go to war. The cost of life. The cost of, of your people. If you're the king, if you're the decision maker, you've got, to weigh, you've got to weigh, are the lives that we might lose worth the battle that we might win? So the tower, this is the first thing he talks about. This tower would probably be a tower that would be within a vineyard. And in this vineyard, you'd build this tower so you could overlook the work. You could see if people were trying to steal from you. You could see um, kind of everything going on. They were built out of rock. They were built to last. Um, they don't have, obviously, tools and things that we had of this day. This was a very long process, and it was costly, and it was hard work. He says in verse 28, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he, was laid, he, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So to build these towers it meant establishing a foundation. You don't build a house just by walking up or build anything really and just going, oh, well, I trust the ground to, to hold, right? No, you dig down. You see what's under the ground. You level it out. You put a solid base, a solid foundation. Before you ever begin to go up, there's a lot of work that has to be done on the ground. And as, the, as you build this, as you do all of this, there's, it's a lot more money than just what you see above the ground. You have to invest in the foundation, Again, this is a complete fundamental change to everything we know and hold dear. When we come to know the Lord, as we count the cost of becoming a disciple of Jesus, we need to understand what we're saying yes to. It is a reordering of everything. Everything, our culture, the way we've been raised, what we've always leaned into, our hopes, our dreams. It is digging down that foundation, removing it, and building a solid foundation in order to build off. And if we don't build on that foundation, we're no better off than when we started. It's hard work. In fact, Jesus had already told his disciples to take up their cross and follow me. But he also added daily. Uh, Maybe you've started a project before, and maybe some of you have an unfinished project right now, um, where you've started a project and it, it, it seemed you were... Man, you were jazzed about it at the beginning, and then as it's gone on and on, you're just like, it's hard work. It's tired. I see some people looking at other people. I don't mean to start stuff, okay? Um, Listen, listen, let's just tower, okay? Um, So uh, uh, we realize the difficulty that that brings. We realize the, the hardship, that it's hard work. It's expensive. And if... If we want to go further with this tower metaphor, if, if building of this tower is the, the growing in our relationship with Christ, then honestly, none of us really have the moral funds to do it anyway. We're all going to fail. We're sinful. We're fleshly. We, we, we give into our flesh. We give into our temptations. Discipleship is a process. 
It's a process of changing, of reordering. Again, you don't just start building day one. You have to build down. You have to build the foundation. But thank God that his grace is sufficient for us. Paul says this when he talks about, uh, when he's talking about the thorn in his flesh, and he's asked the Lord uh, to remove it. And the Lord tells him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So really the way, that, the way that we build this tower and grow closer to the Lord is the more we realize that, the more we see the depth of our sin, the more humble we become, the more we see that we can't gain salvation on our own. There's no room for pride. There's no room for any of that. So in order to, to build that spiritual tower, it really comes down to us just every single day giving up, giving up everything taking up our cross daily, giving that back to the Lord. And there will be temptations to fall away. It's not an easy journey. It's not an easy thing to build. It's, it's not an easy process. It's hard work, and it's difficult. We may try to cut our losses and stop. Maybe we didn't consider how great the cost was, or, or maybe it, we just realize it's too difficult. And to not finish that tower is ultimately to fall away from what God has called us to, it says that when you build the foundation, people come and just and mock. Well, the world mocks us when we say no, when we, when we give away, when we fall away. Because ultimately, we prove that we're the same as them. We put so much of our effort and resources in only to be left with nothing for them to see but our brokenness. And ultimately, we're just as miserable as they are. Ha, hypocrite, I knew it. I knew you weren't really serious about, what, about it. You're just like me. You gave up all these things, and now look where it's led you. This is part of the danger of, of what's been known or what's been called cultural Christianity. We do what we feel is right, what we've been raised with. with um, we don't read God's word for the sake of, of growing and, and understanding his living word. We read it because it's what we think we should do. And we, we don't really ask God to challenge us, but we just do what we feel is right rather than what God says is right. We dedicate our whole lives to our view of Christianity rather than God's living and active word. We judge our actions by our own standards and not by the Lord's. We build a tower of, of, of cardboard and of uh, sticks and expect it to have strength and be helpful, but really it's nothing. It's no better than the foundation that's just laying there. In fact, it's worse because we put confidence in something that doesn't deserve to have confidence put in it. An unfinished tower or cardboard tower is aimless and unhelpful. You're no better off with this pile of rocks than you were before you ever broke ground. So what Jesus is saying is if you say yes, if you start digging, if you start going through this, see it through. John would later say in 2 John 8, watch yourselves that you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. You see, the cost of saying yes to Jesus is ultimately us saying no to ourselves, no to what we want. That's the cost of saying yes. What about the cost of saying no? What does that mean for us? What do we, what do, we do with that? Verse 31, Jesus says, What king, going out to encounter another king in war, 
will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. In, in war, I've never been in war, but um, I've, I've read a lot about it and I've had friends who are veterans and um, it's best not to act emotionally, to re- react emotionally to things. Um, some of the greatest uh, military strategists in all of history, um, they didn't just go in and just say, well, we'll just see what happens, right? Just kind of see. No, there was planning before. There was consideration of what to do with what we had. A good king counts the cost of what he is doing. And notice, notice in this verse that it says that the opposing army is coming against him. This isn't an attack. This isn't, uh, this isn't a consideration of whether we should attack or not. No, inevitably, the opposing king is coming with a greater force, with greater resources, um, and inevitably, it doesn't look good. So the king asks himself, what are, what are the chances that we succeed? How many soldiers will I lose? Am I willing to lose soldiers to gain victory? And this particular king looks at the odds and sees that uh, they're not very good. He's outnumbered two to one. Um, they are coming toward him. They are progressing against him. And uh, time is limited. Time is limited. So this king has to consider what should we do? He can't entertain victory, so what, what's next? What should we do? I know I can't beat them. So Jesus continues on and says, if the king sees he can't come against them, while the other army is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. This is a, an act of Surrender an act of what do I need to do for you not to come in and wreck everything? What do I need to do in order to save my kingdom, in order to keep my kingdom? A good king will see what is required for peace to save the kingdom. And here's the thing. Um, we face a greater king than ourselves. Um, we face a more powerful king. Not only that, he's a righteous king. This isn't an unwarranted um, advance. This isn't an unwarranted judgment. You see, one day all of us will be called to account. Death is completely inevitable, and every human being uh, will eventually meet death, and will uh, do that. And in that, we will stand before our King. We will experience judgment, um, and that King, that that time is indefinitely coming towards us. And here's the thing, our sin sickness, because we are guilty, because we have sinned against God, ultimately what we have to decide is, is it worth saying no? Is it worth saying no in that situation? Now, I don't mean saying no as in, well, we're just going to sit here and we're just going to kind of lay back and hope for the best in this moment. I don't mean saying no in that way, because ultimately that doesn't matter. We know what the terms of peace are. The terms of peace are simple. The terms of peace are total and unconditional surrender to the righteous king, to the Lord. Jesus says this to to them, and then he ends it with this. So therefore, as if it weren't clear enough already, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has 
cannot be my disciple. Again, the crowd is hype. We're following Jesus to Jerusalem. We've seen all these incredible things, all these wonderful things. And Jesus is walking, stops and turns to them and says, give up everything. Anything. Anything you have in this world, give up everything. Risk it all. Lay it all down at my feet. Unconditional surrender is what it takes to be a disciple of mine, to truly be a follower. It's not walking around looking for miracles. It's not walking around hoping for Israel to be restored. It's not walking around looking for the defeat of the Romans. It's none of that. It is complete and total surrender. Now, this is not a very easy passage to preach. Um, But I want to make two things very, very certain. Number one, Jesus walked around and ate with sinners. These weren't people who got their lives together and then approached Jesus. Jesus met people where they were, and inevitably he'll do the same for us. He'll meet us where we're at in, in, the, in, in the worst spots of our lives. We don't have to clean up before we come to Jesus. His, his grace is incredible. His desire is that each and every person have a relationship with him, and he meets us where we are, and we're able to follow him. And, and he, again, no wonder people wanted to be around him with all the things he was doing. Man, that grace that he gives us in that moment. But there's a second thing that we have to understand. Jesus will expect to clean us up after. We can come to him in our filth. We can come to him in our addiction. We can come to him in the worst points of our life and give ourselves to him. And he's fine with that, but it comes at a cost. That cost is those other things. That cost is worldly things, the things that we desire maybe most. Maybe it's our lifelong dreams. Maybe it's our wealth. Maybe it's the thing that I've worked so long for and I've finally achieved. Our salvation and our discipleship hinge on our repentance. And repentance isn't just remorse. This is there's nothing wrong if you came to know the Lord and you were emotional in that moment. I was emotional when I gave my life to the Lord. There is is nothing wrong with that. But we need to count the cost. We need to understand what we're saying yes to, what the commitment is. We can't just come remorseful. We have to come expecting transformation of our lives a changing of what we are, a breaking up of the foundation and all of that stuff removed, an establishment of a foundation, not only an establishment of a new foundation, but allowing the Lord to continue to grow us and build us. Loving the Lord so much that by comparison to anything else, we don't even have eyes for anything else. We push all of that away because our eyes are based on the Lord. They're looking at him. We look to him in every situation. His word dictates the way we act. If we need to apologize, we apologize. There's no room for pride here. There's no room for me getting my way every time. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And what dictates if I'm right is God's word, not my own personal preferences or my own cultural expectations. I'm going to ask Chris to come up, and I want you to ask yourself this question. What's the cost? What is the cost I want you to consider, consider the cost of saying no because it, both things cost us something. There's no neutrality. We can't be neutral. 
If you say no, or do you just sit in your kingdom and hope for the best? Just sit there and just have a good time. And you know, I'll try to be a good person. I'll see if I'll be a good person. And as this comes along, I'll try to be the best person that I can. And I'll, I'll give the charity and I'll do this and I'll do that. Is that what you think will last? Because that's not paying the price that's required. If we're honest, will you allow your pride to come out and say, you know what, I'm going to go out and I'm going to fight anyway. I'm going to charge the opposing arm. I'm going to do what I know is best. I'm going to do what I want to. My life is up to me. This is my destiny. This is what I want. I've worked for it. I've done it. I'll do what I want. And you know what? God's lucky to have me on his team. No, no. Both end in the same way. Both end in loss. So what's the price of saying yes? Maybe this morning if you're, if, if you're not a follower of Jesus or maybe you're a follower of Jesus and you're, you're just stagnant. Maybe you're counting the cost of, okay, if I take this step, if I start, if I break ground on this tower, if I start doing this, what will it cost me? Maybe you're standing there in front of a foundation, a pile of rocks that you may have started years ago, but you feel like you've run out of funds and you're just kind of limping through your spiritual life, hoping for the best. I don't know, I don't know where you're at. Consider the cost. Consider the cost of saying no of saying yes, because here, here's the thing. You, you notice at the very end um, where Jesus said that if, if, if he sees, if the king sees that he can't win, there's no way he can win. Inevitably, he will lose. He sends a delegation to ask for terms of peace. We find peace in the Lord. We find overwhelming peace in this, in this odd moment. It's not about our freedom to do what we want to, but in submission to our Savior, we find peace. Are we following Jesus just because we see the crowd and that seems to be the people around us follow Jesus? Are we following him because we love the way it makes us feel, because it makes us feel like we're part of something greater? Or are we following Jesus and willing to give everything that we have, everything that we have, Are we valuing our families to the point that we love Jesus more than them and we're allowing the Lord's, how the Lord is changing us to overflow into our spouses and to our kids and to our brothers and sisters and our parents and grandparents and nieces and nephews and neighbors and coworkers? Are we, are we that committed to it? Have we said yes to it? Are we building our tower day in and day out and allowing God to work through us? Are we willing to say yes? Are we counting the cost? That rich young ruler could have followed that crowd around all day. He could have followed around for, for months or years. Uh, he, he could have done that all he wanted to. But until he was willing to give up everything, everything, everything he valued, everything he'd ever wanted, everything he loved, all of those things, until he was willing to give that up, in exchange to identify with Christ in his shame and suffering and submission to the will of God, he was not a follower of Christ.
Are we willing to say yes? Are we willing to count the cost? Maybe you're, you're someone who, is, who has struggled with, with addiction and has struggled with, with pride and all of those things. And listen, I, I, we, we all have things that we struggle with. We all have things that we're going to walk through. Some of those are more difficult for some people and some are more difficult for others. It's easy for me to look at your thing and say, oh, that's, you, you should get over that. But are we willing to give those things up? Are we willing to be so, just so surrendered to the Lord that I don't, I don't chase that anymore? I don't chase the money or the fame or the influence. I don't chase, uh, you know, uh, the drugs or, uh, or, or pornography or whatever it is that you struggle with. I don't, I don't chase those things anymore because I've counted the cost and I found it worth giving all of that up. All of that up. The immediate gratification, the, the, the things that are overwhelming to me, the things that seem to have such a hold on me that I can't break through. I'm giving all of that up, laying that at the feet of the Lord and saying, yes. It is worth it. And I can tell you whether you're a Christian who is stagnant in your relationship with the Lord or whether you've never given your life to Christ, maybe you're actively against the Lord and you're here because you're tired of hearing about it, people telling you you need to be. Listen, welcome. We love you. We want you to be here. But I can promise you to every person in this room, the cost of saying yes is great. It is a lot, but it is worth it. He is worth it. He's worth it in every moment to give all of that up. Wouldn't we want to do that for our families? Wouldn't we want to do that for for the people who are hurting? So I'm going to ask you if you will stand and as we sing, I want you to just take a moment. Take a moment and ask the Lord, have I considered the cost If you want to come to the front, we we would love to pray with you. We're not going to force you to make a decision. We're not going to force you to do anything. We just want to know how we can pray with you, how we can walk with you. The cost of saying yes is huge, but the eternal cost of saying no, it it costs us everything. Regardless, both of them cost us everything but on the one hand we either get what we deserve for our sin sickness for our sinful natures we we get eternal separation from our creator from our savior or if we say yes we get forever with him is it worth it need help finding or taking your next step send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc